Hello, everyone. Welcome to Danger on Delmarva. My name is Rhonda Franny Jefferson, and I will be your host to take you down the sometimes treacherous paths that wind around Delmarva. Delmarva, a place that many people see as a little piece of heaven that has beaches, tax-free shopping in Delaware at least, one of the best children's hospitals in the world, and of course is home to our current president. This episode can also be heard on podcast apps as well as on YouTube, where I do upload the audio um, of the podcast. That way, if someone likes to have the TV on in the background, it can be um, listened to while you're going about your day. But please excuse me if I happen to use the terms podcast and video interchangeably. Now, if you're not familiar with Delmarva, it's an area in the Mid-Atlantic region that encompasses all of Delaware, Maryland to the east of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge, and Virginia to the north of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel. It really is a wonderful place to live. There are gorgeous parks to visit. We're central to many activities, including a pretty close proximity to New York, D.C., and Baltimore, places where we can visit locations that explore our history. And our unique position also allows us for fast travel between states or to distant parts of a state that frankly can feel like an entirely different world. So even though you have the eastern shore of Virginia and the eastern shore of Maryland, sometimes once we cross that bridge or that tunnel, it feels completely different from the eastern shore, even though they're part of the same states. Now also, I love doing this show because to me, all of this is real. There are stories that I cover that I'm very close to, whether it's by location, knowing people. It's just very real, and I don't want anybody to forget the stories and the lives of those that have been impacted or where lives have been taken. I want their stories and their names to be remembered. So... I look at this podcast as a way to keep their stories alive. Also, I've mentioned before in the past that I do know a number number of people that have been victims of violent crimes, including murder. So to me, I actually see this as a almost a form of therapy where I admit I didn't face the consequences of what happened, whether it was looking at those who were put on trial and accepting their sentence or not, or facing the fact that people I know were gone at the hands of people that they knew. I admit a lot of times I closed up. And the more that I've done this podcast, the more that I've, I've realized it is helping me discuss things that before I couldn't, that I kind of locked up inside of me. So with that, you know, I do want to make a couple of announcements. One is within probably the next one or two episodes, I will be doing an episode on a case where I knew the victims somewhat, but I knew their killer even better. And I was very young when I knew her. My mom babysat her 
and for a long time, I would have probably considered her my best friend. And this happened around 30 years ago, and it's taken me a while to get to this point where I can try to look at her and her life and try to figure out why she killed her mother and stepfather. I have had some difficulty finding information. One, I believe, is probably because she was a minor when this occurred. Secondly, it's because this took place really at a time where the internet was just starting to take off around the same time. You know, when I went to college, we had things called Netscape. And this happened the year that I went to college. Um, she was a year younger than me in school. But, you know, there's not a lot of information that I could find. And I'll go into more of that when I do the episode. But it is taking more research because while I know the persons involved, I don't really know some of the history of the trial. My mom would try to tell me information about it, but I would just say I don't want to hear it. Again, with the internet not really being out there like it is today, if I decided not to look up or look for any information, I didn't find it. So that's what I did. So I'm actually just coming to terms almost 30 years later with what she did and seeing cases like this happen so much more frequently, I think it's very important to look at these cases, especially the older cases, to kind of see why it's happening more often. Can we create comparisons between motives of 1994 and now? But we will discuss that more when I get to the, that episode. Um, secondly... And I didn't really want to do this, but I broke down and I did buy a subscription to newspapers.com. Um, it really was because of the case that I was just mentioning of the person that I know. Um, so um, I really couldn't find like digital articles like from online um, newspapers or anything like that. I had to go through the archives to really find more detailed information. So I've also found now that I'm starting to, you know, kind of find my way as a podcaster and doing more research and getting into the stories that aren't quite as well known, that depending on the state where it took place and trying to find information such as court documents, you sometimes have to pay for them. I was looking for information on a case and online they will let you see the last year's worth of activity for free, but after that you have to pay. Um, fortunately in some cases there's another website that had downloaded the documents and I was able to look at some of them there, but in some cases depending on what you're looking for, I saw one type of document where it was $4.50 a page, which at that point I was like, I didn't. I don't even know how many pages it will be, so I think I'll have to hold off on that one. But given that, I did um, start a PayPal account, which I didn't really want to do. I mean, I had PayPal just for my payments, you know, when I would pay for something online. But if anybody would like to donate, you know, um, this is difficult for me because I really didn't want 
to start a PayPal account or a Patreon or anything like that to ask people to donate. But I think I understand more why um, for some cases, especially it might be necessary. Um, with my other podcast, there was a book that I wanted to buy, but it was out of print and it was outrageous. So, so there's a lot more information that you know, I want to find and do research on, but sometimes there's a little bit of a roadblock um, because of the cost. So if anybody does want to donate, I would appreciate it. But at the same time, you know, the most important thing is getting stories out there of people's lives and the crimes that took away, you know, people from other people's lives, from their loved ones, as well as you know, disasters that some in some cases may have been prevented. And, you know, just sometimes I do come up to the wall where everything is kind of blocked because of subscriptions and things like that. So with all of that being said, um, I want to get into the case. And I'm going to go back to giving my full disclaimers that um, I give during a podcast or video, just because I want to make sure all bases are covered. So this podcast reflects my personal interest in true crime, disasters, and tragedies, and more importantly, the exploration of how or why an event occurred to try to understand the reasoning behind the acts and decisions of others. I mean, no disrespect to any parties mentioned in this episode. I've obtained facts for this information through sources available in the internet or in print, as well as occasionally referring to different documentaries. In some cases, personal observations about the area or knowledge about certain areas may be discussed. This podcast is produced for informational purposes only, and as I've gleaned information from sources that can be viewed by others, as well as sources where another may have done the research and put their information into print, I cannot guarantee 100% accuracy of everything that is involved. However, I do not usually say anything about a certain aspect if I cannot see it in at least two different sources. If there is ever a case where it's only one source, I will mention that so that you are aware that it's not backed up by a second source. Um, I or my podcast cannot be held responsible for any errors, misinformation, and time delays, such as further updates after the publication of this podcast. As a warning, each episode may discuss injury, death, emotional, and mental health, and may contain triggers regarding various events. I say this during all episodes, so I just you know want to make sure everybody is prepared in information that we may discuss. Today's case does have a little bit of a personal connection for me, and thinking about it, this really has tainted good memories that I had of a restaurant that my family and I would visit when we were staying in Chincoteague, Virginia. Um, we loved to go there because it really wasn't that expensive, it was pretty close to home, and I had a number of brothers and sisters. So it was a nice place just to be able to get away and take walks. And, you know, even now I still like going up there. I don't get or down there, I should say. I don't get down there as often as I would like. 
but many years ago, you know, I climbed the lighthouse when it was open. I've walked around the wildlife refuge and the trails, the beach, and, you know, some of you may know my affinity towards the Chincoteague ponies, so, you know, that's a big aspect as well. You know, at the time where we would visit and stay, you know, for a week or so, our parents didn't have any, you know, concern about us walking around outside. I was the youngest out of everybody, and there was a pretty big age gap. Um, so a lot of times my older siblings might have wanted to do something else. But, you know, there really weren't any concerns about me walking around outside. Um, I knew not to get too close to the water. But, you know, I remember one summer I would just spend my day by, like, a little fishing pier. And there was a cat that lived there and, you know, would eat some of the bait if somebody dropped it or, you know, the fish as they were caught. And I would just spend my days with her, even had a name for her. But everybody just seemed so friendly and it seemed so safe. Now, there's also you know, a restaurant that we would go to every time we went there. And probably more than once. I mean, it was really our go-to because it was, you know, inexpensive. It gave good portions. People were very, very friendly when you went in. You know, never had a problem with, you know, any visit to the restaurant. Now, some places call um, the restaurant famous pizza, famous pizza and subs, famous pizza and sandwiches. So... There's different iterations of the name, but we just called it Famous. So, you know, I do sometimes tell stories about my experiences if I, you know, live close or, you know, have some knowledge of the area. And, you know, this case particularly, I did actually find it more on one article on newspapers.com. And I wasn't aware of this case. Um, this is another one that happened the year that I went away to college. And even though it took a little while for, um, for charges to be brought and the investigation to be over, I was still away during all of that time. So I didn't have as much contact news, you know, on the Eastern Shore. And the person that we'll be discussing today is Tessa Van Hart. And she worked at Famous. And she would be a delivery driver. And I was a pizza delivery driver as well. And you can run the gamut of people that you might run into, whether it's someone who's so nice, even if, say, the pizza's late or you forgot something on the order, that, you know, they'll be, oh, it's fine, don't worry about it, or, you know, just be really, really nice, where others, definitely not so nice, um, you know, but... The place where I worked, you know, there were very clear rules. If you go somewhere and you feel, you know, just even a little bit apprehensive, just call the restaurant, let them know. Um, they would give you advice on whether or not to try to take um, the delivery or nope, just come come back. And that did happen once, you know, that they said, just come back. You know, if you feel uncomfortable, we don't want you there to go in there. And so... You know, in that job, even though this case happened, you know, before I was a driver, I know that some of the same potential for crime was still there. 
So will 99.9% of all your deliveries may go to plan with no really extreme um, you know, danger that you may be put into. There are times where that can occur. And speaking as a woman, sometimes that's more of a risk factor as well. Because again, looking at my experiences, there were times where the male drivers asked if they wanted to take or if I wanted them to take the orders instead of going myself, especially when there had been cases of um, somebody robbing delivery drivers at that time. So, you know, that is another you know, risk factor. So let's take a look at Tessa Van Hart. Um, she faced just this type of situation where in the course of doing her job and supporting herself and her family, she faced a danger that you never want to think about. Her last moments on earth had to have been frightening and terrifying, and it hurts to even think about what must have been going through her head with everything that was happening. She was, I'm sure, thinking about her children, her husband, her parents and siblings, all that she would never get to see again, and they wouldn't get to see her, all because of cruel acts of one man. Tessa was married and she had two children. Her husband, Walter Van Hart, also known as Binky, did work alongside her as a cook at Famous. And just as most families, they were working hard to provide a good life for them and their children. Unfortunately, though, I couldn't find much information about Tessa as an individual. You know, there are t just some bits and pieces here that I could find, but not anything with any detail, really. And so it feels like Tessa's memory is being lost, and I don't want that to happen. In the course of the research, I did come across a Reddit post from someone who said that they used to live near Tessa and her family, and even though this poster from Reddit was younger than the Van Harts, she would sometimes go over to hang out with them, and she would play video games, and she described Tessa as being pretty much fantastic at video games back in um, 1994. But just remember, too, this is Reddit. Um, you know, there's nothing really there that we can verify. I did, um, you know, reply to that comment to try to you know, get some more information or insight from that poster on Reddit, but I didn't hear anything back. So, you know, I've, I'm now going on with the episode. So just as in most cases, a lot of information is provided about the perpetrator of the crime, but unfortunately not as much about the victim. On January 27th, 1994, at approximately 7.45 p.m., Tessa and her husband, Binky, as well as all the employees at Famous, were working their normal shift with no clue that that day would change so many lives and in so many different ways. Now, January, of course, is not as busy as other times of the year where beaches are opened and tourists flock to the area. Now, also remember, these are the days before cell phones. So she probably just looked at a map, no GPS on a phone to find the location, but more importantly, no phone to be able to communicate back 
to the restaurant in case she felt uneasy or if she was able to get to a phone if there was a problem. So she may have also just known the areas very well and was used to things being really quiet in Chincoteague, you know, in the off season. So when she went to this house, it may not have really seemed unusual because the house that she went to was in an area where a lot of times it's more occupied during the summer. So in making her delivery order, she would encounter someone who was bent on causing and inflicting pain and ultimately taking a human life. This man was the one who placed the order with no regard for how his actions would hurt the victim, her friends and family, and the two children who would grow up without a mother, as well as the community as a whole. But Brian Cherix completed this awful plan. Tessa Van Hart was lured to an area that was described as remote with an unoccupied summer home. So this is what I was thinking of when I said if she you know, was in an area that didn't really seem occupied, in January it may not have seemed that unusual. So this makes me wonder too, are there summer homes not only in Chincoteague but in other beach towns that are utilized by unlawful tenants, i.e. squatters? And could some of these empty homes serve as a base for more nefarious acts? But in this vacant home, Tessa was brutally assaulted. One of the things that always bothers me when I think about someone dying, no matter whether it's a victim of a violent crime or something happening like a car accident or if someone just dies peacefully in their sleep, I wonder if there was anything going through their minds that made them feel like they weren't alone. In those moments, Tessa probably felt so alone while this man brutalized her. He caused so much pain physically and emotionally. She probably held out hope, praying that the assault would be over quickly and then she would be let go to go back to her home and her family and her job. When was there a realization that she would not see them again and her children would grow up without her? Or did she hold out hope until the very, very end? But when Brian Cherix was done assaulting her, he shot Tessa two times in the back of the head. So just as quickly as her day went from being like any other day to being a nightmare, she was killed. Now, being 1994, things are, were not as trackable as they are now. With our smartphones, they pretty much track our every move. And even if you turn off your location settings, there are sometimes apps that run in the background that still collect that data. Now, while I think criminals have to a certain extent begin to realize how important technology is in tracking them, it does still amaze me how many take their cell phones with them now or turn them off. These are some of the things we think of currently when a crime occurs. Can we track their cell phone? Can we track 
a cell phone in the area, but that couldn't happen at this time. So did the assailant, the murderer, leave any type of evidence that could be traced back to him? And while DNA was being used at this time, the speed and the technology just was not as advanced as it is today, nowhere near close to you know, how sophisticated it is now. So the police really didn't have much to go on in an investigation other than there was a call received to deliver pizza or any of their other menu items to a certain address, and then she was gone. Now, of course, her husband, Binky, was alarmed when she did not come back from the delivery. He did alert police, and he and others searched the area to try to find her. Eventually, they came to an area that was on small piney island of Chincoteague, and that was about a mile from where the delivery was supposed to have been made. They found her car, and in the front seat were undelivered pizzas. But in the back seat of the car was Tessa's body. Though she was found pretty quickly, you know, that same night that she went missing, those hours of not knowing must have seemed like days to her loved ones. And then when they found out what happened, that pain would become worse because at that point there was no hope. Now, I'm sure that Binky must have been looked at as a suspect, but he did have a solid alibi with their co-workers, knowing when she left the, the pizza shop and knowing that he was there the whole time and also knowing that she never came back. So given a timeline, Binky could not have done it. More than two years would pass, really close to three with no movement on the investigation. It would take a solid piece of evidence a witness statement, or just pure luck to find the culprit. And pure luck is just what they received. Well, pure luck mixed with stupidity and arrogance, in my opinion. Brian Cherricks was already in jail awaiting trial and sentencing. He had been charged with attempting to kill his half-brother. He had tried to shoot him. So he also had some grand larceny accounts thrown in, but he felt that he had an ace in the hole, if you will, that he could provide information about a cold case murder and in return would get a more lenient sentence. But this backfired spectacularly. He did have a ready-made scapegoat in mind. His cousin had been killed in a car accident in 1995, and I'm not going to say his name because I really don't want to tarnish his name just by association and someone that was implicated. But what Brian Cherricks decided to do was to blame, blame this murder on the deceased cousin. He indicated to police that his cousin had provided details about the murder, which is how he showed that the cousin was the killer. However, though there's no specific information on what the police checked or how they accomplished this, they were able to go back and look for information of the, about this cousin and where he was at the time and through whatever that was, work records or he was on vacation that they could prove. But he was, you know, counted out as a suspect. He was cleared because they could, you know, actually find proof that he could not have been involved. So this leads to the next question, which is if the cousin didn't do it, how did Brian Cherricks know all of this information? 
Now, I don't know if it was guilt or possibly knowing that he had opened his mouth way too much and that the police may eventually figure out it was him, but he decided to confess. So after making his initial statement that his cousin was the one to blame, he then admitted that he was the one who killed Tessa Van Hart and brutally assaulted her. Here, Cherix provides some insight into Tessa's final moments, indicating that she begged for her life. And as a mother, myself, I wonder if also in those pleas she was begging not only for her life, but for the memories and guidance and love that she could have provided her children. So with the other charges that Cherix had, he was given nine years. This would give the police time to investigate the murder and see if they could find any way to connect Brian Cherix to the crime. In 1997, he took police to the exact location of where the murder weapon was. He was able to provide information that the killer would have known and that really no one other than the killer or someone close to the killer would have known. And so the gun was recovered. It was a 22 caliber rifle and an FBI agent named Steve Casper reported on the ballistic findings of the gun, saying that the markings on the bullets that killed Tessa matched those that were test-fired from the gun from the creek. The two state police divers found what was called a Marlin 22 caliber rifle in Sheepshead Creek, just where Cherick said he would be. Now, this murder and the aftermath shook the otherwise safe and welcoming community of Chincoteague, described as a place where people would feel pretty comfortable leaving their doors unlocked. According to some testimony, Cherix had actually been within Famous before, and he had talked to and looked at Tessa, and you know, somehow looking for an opportunity to possibly see her again. She had spoken to him, again, this is based on reports and testimony, and she probably didn't think too much of it. Someone was just trying to talk to her. Maybe they were lonely or something like that. So, you know, she probably didn't really find it unusual that someone would come in and start talking. Some people said that he would give her a $20 tip just to see her and later A law enforcement officer testified that Cherix had told him, quote, she told me I had pretty kids like their father, end quote. Now, all of this was said probably with no thought that a deranged man might focus on her and was trying to push his way into her life in ways that she and nobody else could ever imagine. Cherix also told an officer that once he had ordered the pizza and began to wait for Tessa at the abandoned home on that night in 1994, he hid on the property. He said that he went behind the chimney and waited for her. Now, just to kind of get a visual 
you know, without actually seeing the house itself, you know how some houses do have chimneys where you can see them on the side of the house, so not necessarily in the back, where it would give someone a good vantage point to see someone approaching the house, you know, with it being dark at that point in time in the winter, that they might be able to see the approaching headlights, but the person driving couldn't see them. So... When Tessa got there, he had the rifle with him and he threatened her. He told her to lay down in the dirt and her face was against the ground while she was begging for her life. And she told him that she wouldn't tell anybody that it would be just like it would never happened, but Cherix couldn't take that chance. He said that he snapped. However, bringing a rifle to commit the crime did show some type of premeditation because even if he only planned it to, to use it as a threat, there is always that possibility whenever guns or weapons are brought to the scene of a crime that something will happen to the victim and not just a robbery or an assault when there's a weapon involved like that. Cherick said that after he committed the crime, he, quote, went home and called my wife like nothing happened. So there's not really anything about the wife mentioned or, you know, any possible children. Um, even though there is a brief mention of it, it sounds like he may have had at least one child. But he went about his day as if nothing happened. Now, when he says he called his wife, it again doesn't mention anything really about her so I don't know if either they were separated or he was working in a different part of the state you know things like that but he just reached out to his wife after he had just finished assaulting and killing someone and even with all the statements being given with him showing the police the location of the weapon when he went to trial or arraignment he pleaded not guilty. Quote, it took a long time to focus on Cherix to the point that we did obtain a particular suspect. This was stated by Accomac, Com I'm sorry, Accomac County Commonwealth Attorney Gary Agar. He said about the case, you have a young lady who was out here trying to make a living for two children and nobody deserves to die the way that she died. It's just something we cannot allow to happen in this society. Brian Cherix was convicted and sentenced to death. And as we've seen so many times, there's what seems to be an endless filing of appeals once that death sentence is passed. And so while I know that the issue of the death penalty can be polarizing and looking at both sides, some will say that it takes too long for the appeals and execution process and that it should happen more quickly so that the families can try to find at least a little bit of closure or people are completely opposed. For the most part, I really don't know how I feel about the death penalty and not necessarily because of the act itself, but I do find that there 
is really more punishment and sitting in jail for the next 30, 40, or 50 years without the hope of ever getting out of prison. While all of his loved ones are sitting at home celebrating birthdays, spending time with each other at the holidays, and building memories that that convict would never experience those celebrations and build those memories ever again. And near the end, it seemed as though Cherix felt the same way. He had indicated that he did not want to spend the rest of his life in jail, but at the same time, he did still continue with an appeals process because he claimed he was innocent. Some things that might make people take pause about whether he's guilty or not is DNA. In 2001, a judge ordered that DNA testing be performed on biological evidence that was left at the scene. Now, there was not enough of the evidence back then to actually run a conclusive test, and the results came back inconclusive. And also, one was done in 2003 with more advanced techniques, but again, it came back inconclusive. But DNA would play a role in the post-conviction process of Brian Cherrick's. There was an interesting statistic that comes up with this crime. As DNA testing was becoming more and more recognized and understood, people who were on death row were submitting appeals where they were asking for you know, any type of biological evidence that was involved in their case to be tested. Now, when this case had taken place, there were at least nine people across the nation who had been on death row that had been cleared by the use of DNA testing. And one of those was somebody from Virginia, a man named Earl Washington Jr. So while I'm sure the judiciary of every state, of every type of court, whether it's state or federal, they follow new trends and look at cases that might actually make law. So I'm sure that they had to be familiar with cases where DNA had actually overturned convictions. And in you know, this particular case, there had already been one person cleared in the state of Virginia. But at that time, at least, Virginia did not allow a prisoner to just be able to ask for DNA tests to be done. It was not considered that they had the right to do so. Now, in consideration of time, I'm just going to try to abbreviate things that have taken place since then. Things have changed. In 2001, new regulations were passed that um, did allow for those who were convicted of murder to request that DNA be tested. Now, there were also some violent crimes that they could be tested for as well. And these were for cases that had been tried between 1973 and 1988. And at the time of a report that I read from 2019, there at least had been 20 people in Virginia who were exonerated because of this post-conviction testing. There were other exonerations in the state, but they were for other reasons. Now, there was testing done between 2001 and 2004, and at the first, as the first testing started, it was really randomly being reviewed for a certain percent of the crimes. It was kind of random as I said, um, but as more people were exonerated, more testing was ordered until finally in 2005, the governor stated that 
um, all biological evidence that will still be retained in the archives should be tested. And this included now all violent crimes um, that were committed against people, which of course then would include killing someone. Over half a million cases were reviewed to see if there was any viable DNA that was stored that could be used. Now, after initial studies were completed, then further steps were taken to identify individuals who were eligible to have their DNA or the DNA in their case run and be provided information on how they could request that. Now, some individuals had actually finished their sentence, um, especially if the violent crime was not murder, then you know, they may have gotten out pretty early. And since some could not be located, there was actually a committee or a group formed to try to locate them and be sure that they knew they could be given, you know, a chance to have this tested. And even though the exonerations were not a really high number compared to the number of cases um, of violent crimes in the state, it still impacts everybody involved in that exoneration and that case. So if someone's exonerated, you have an innocent person who spent time behind bars, um, maybe even decades, maybe even facing the chance of being put to death for a crime they didn't commit. All the while, there is evidence sitting in an archive somewhere that could prove their innocence. We also have the fact then that the true perpetrator of that offense would have been free for years, just going out, doing whatever he did or she did to live their regular lives, or possibly they could have committed more crimes and ended up in jail for another crime. Families of both the victim and the wrongfully convicted would have spent years going through trials and appeals, all for naught. The family of the victim having any bits of closure and feelings of finality brutally snatched away from them. So we'll get back to Tessa's particular story in a moment, but it does make you wonder how many people may not have had viable DNA evidence saved in their case, whether it was because it was so long ago that they didn't really have methods for that or if it had been tossed out, that they're sitting in jail and there's a possibility at one time there was evidence that could have proven them innocent. So back to the case at hand, because Virginia did have those limitations at the time, some inmates in Virginia would take the cases to federal court, and that is what Cherix did. They argued that the DNA may not only exclude Cherix, but may also show his innocence. In other words, if the DNA evidence completely eliminated Cherix, if it was not his biological fluid left at the scene, then he would have been innocent and the death penalty should have been overturned. So even if they weren't able to find a match for the DNA, Cherix's attorneys were arguing that it could rule him out, basically. Now, Judge Lee Rowland is the one who heard the case, and he did agree with Cherix and his attorney and issued an order that any biological evidence in the Tessa Van Hart case needed to be preserved. 
The state of Virginia did not really take kindly to this and questioned the authority that a federal court would have to order a state to do something. States had made their individual laws and guidelines regarding DNA testing, so Virginia state attorneys did not feel that Judge Lee should have been issuing that order. The Virginia, Virginia Attorney General Mark Early said that, quote, we believe that a federal court cannot compel a state official to act as a private investigator and laboratory for a convicted capital murderer, end quote. But Cherix was able to have the DNA tested, and both within the 2001 and 2003 testing, again, there was an inconclusive result, so they could not rule him in or rule him out. Now, he did continue with appeals for other instances as well, even though later on he did decline for his attorney, Robert Jenkins Jr., to send or reach out to the governor a request for clemency. However, Cherix did see a lifetime in prison as worse than, exe worse than execution. He did make some requests regarding what would happen after his death, requesting that his body not be autopsied and claiming it was because of his religious values. Um, normally, when an inmate is executed, an autopsy is performed. Jenkins was still fighting for his client, um, saying that, quote, we are in the process of trying to negotiate a resolution. Nothing has been finalized, but we intend to reach a mutually agreeable solution in the next 24 hours. A me major piece of contention with the defense against the prosecution was Brian Cherick's grandmother's testimony. Her name was Louise Cherix, and she testified at trial as his alibi witness. However, she had signed another document that included a 15-minute discrepancy. The prosecution used this to show that the grandmother was not exactly the most reliable witness. The defense argued that it had not been turned over to them, this written statement that was signed by Louise Cherix, and that as this was exculpatory, it should have been turned over to them. Now, personally, I am a big believer in the requirement of turning over all evidence to the defense. There have been wrongful convictions that have been based on the fact that information that could have helped the defense had been held back. However, the defense had access to Brian Cherix's grandmother, and they were the ones using her as a witness. Hence, the defense did have access to the information from the statement because the grandmother was the one who provided the statement. And here I'm just trying to interpret some of the information that was provided regarding this. Um, you know, so this is what seems to have happened. Now, I can see this as a very sticky situation, but the appeals court did not overturn Sherrick's convention or conviction based on the fact that the defense did have access to the person who had made that statement. Others who, you know, were fighting on the defense stated, to paraphrase some of the statements that were used, that a decision like this would basically negate the prosecution's duty to hand over exculpatory evidence and make it the defense attorney's role to discover it. Again, I can see it from both sides, um, you know, 
did the defense attorney or if the defense attorney doesn't know something is there, such as a flawed statement, then they don't know to look for it. Also, this confused me to an extent because Cherix's grandmother was already giving testimony as an alibi witness for Brian. To have another document that disputed the timeline and alibi would, to me, be counterproductive for the defense. The defense, again, my opinion, it really seems like they were grasping at straws because, yes, a 15-minute discrepancy could be important, but at the same time, it really wasn't used to present that. It was used to present the grandmother as possibly an unreliable witness. Usually the defense is going to practice with their witnesses, asking questions and trying to bring up any conceivable um, way to try to get their client off of the charge. They do this in advance to make sure that any, you know, bump or roadblock is you know, taken care of before they actually get to the, the trial. But they didn't do that in this case. And also, while I'm definitely not a legal expert, I have seen enough true crime cases, television shows, and also acting as a jury member once, that the rules around evidence is extremely particular. Now, this example may not be exactly the same, but it shows the fine lines and details that one has to have when approaching testimony. But if a judge rules a piece of evidence is out of bounds, um, you know, so whichever side is trying to present it is no longer allowed to. You know, so basically the judge squashes um, a bit of evidence that for whatever reason, you know, doesn't want it mentioned in the actual trial. But if in the course of an interrogation, the witness or the attorney even who had requested that whatever information be um, quashed, if there is any type of slip up and something about that other incident or the other case is brought up, that kind of opens the door and the other attorney can then cross-examine them. So appeals kept being filed, especially for DNA evidence. Um, as we mentioned before, though, all the evidence came back inconclusive. In a telephone interview in 2001, Cherick stated that he was innocent, but that he had confessed to the crime to get police to stop bothering him. So going to that statement and also going back to information about when Cherick did provide details of the murder to the police, I would like to know what Cherix meant by stop bothering him. Does he mean that the questioning was annoying and it was bothering him? Um, he's the one who actually brought up the case. So if they're following up, it's not necessarily that they're bothering him. He presented information regarding a case and they're of course going to want to question him. But given you know, being in his situation that he'd opened his mouth, a little too wide there and it backfired you know he's probably doing anything to try you know to get just get that last 
hope that something can be done to stop the execution. After the date was set, this is where Cherix asked the attorney to file no more, you know, requests for clemency and things like that. Unlike how he left Tessa, Brian Cherix entered the death chamber in nice clothes and was neatly groomed. He had a spiritual advisor in there with him who was there to comfort him and lend advice in his final moments. He had gotten to say goodbye to some of his family earlier that day. On March 18, 2004, Brian Cherix was executed and declared deceased at 9.10 p.m. So, we know the outcome of the case. We knew that Cherix was executed. So, I think it's time to just get some ideas on the case. Now, first of all, just to bring up the death penalty, I know, again, that it can be polarizing, in my research for the case, I did actually look at um, sources from both pro-death penalty and anti-death penalty so that, you know, I could provide information that each side had looked at and, you know, decided to discuss within their forums or, you know, write articles about this particular case. The sources that I used will be in the description of the episode. However, there were some items that didn't really have a digital link. So I put the name of the article as well as the site that it came from in the description as well. As far as the DNA goes, you know, I'm trying to look at it on both a legal level and a personal opinion level. You know, first, with the DNA evidence being tested, um, the Virginia Attorney General was trying to prevent the testing as we you know, discussed a few moments ago. But at one point, this is a quote that he made. This matter is not an issue about Cherix's alleged innocence. It is about what we believe a federal court cannot compel a state official to act as a private investigator courier, and laboratory for a convicted capital murderer. While I do believe that Cherix was guilty, the idea, though, that an attorney general anywhere would say that a request to test evidence was not an issue about alleged innocence to be baffling. The whole purpose of a prosecutor is for justice, and if you don't convict the right man or woman... That's not justice. Any attorney or anybody in the judiciary or legal system at any point needs to look at finding the truth first. As with everything, there are bound to be some funding and budget issues, especially as far as the testing goes. But when a person is facing death, it's better to be sure if someone is really fighting for justice, they would not be afraid to have the testing done. Another thought that I had while going through this was Cherix's final requests. He requested that his body not be autopsied. He again cited his belief that, you know, this was in regards to religion and that his body was a temple that should not be mutilated. He did have this granted by the medical examiner. 
He just had the blood drawn for toxicology after death. He also made a request that his last words not be revealed to the public. I did see at least one article that said his last words were unknown, but you know this was his request. They honored it, and so for sure, or as a definite, we don't know what his last words may have been. So in anticipation of his execution, he was given more rights and privileges than Tessa Van Hart was given by him. She had begged for her life to be there with her husband and children and family and to just be able to go back to work and live the rest of her life. But Brian Cherix denied her that. And so this does upset me a little bit. For the most part, I believe everyone deserves dignity in death. If not even necessarily for the deceased person, but for the family members and loved ones who are left behind to deal with the loss. However, when someone kills another person, to me, they're taking away some of those rights. And, you know, the, the legal system pretty much does the same thing, that when someone commits a crime, they pretty much gave up their rights to not be in prison and they will be imprisoned. Louise Cherix, Brian's grandmother and the person who actually raised him, said that when she thinks about the case, she remembers um, Tessa Van Hart's children, that she also thinks of them and everything that they had lost. Now, this is somewhat hard to take as she's one who tried to provide an alibi for her grandson. And just in case anybody was on the fence about whether or not Brian Cherix killed Tessa Van Hart because there was a lack of biological evidence that could place him there or any other testimony that would you know, connect him to the crime, Louise Cherix admitted that after she had testified, Brian admitted to her that he was guilty. So she cried tears during interviews. And I, I wonder exactly why she was crying. There could have been so many reasons why she was. It could possibly have been all of them. You know, she said that she thought of Van Hart's children. So, you know, that definitely is a reason she could have been crying. But also the grandson that she raised as a son would be dying soon. Was she crying about guilt? Because, you know, if she had kept a more rigid timeline or the statement and verbal testimony had matched up, the written statement and verbal testimony had matched up and wasn't questioned, could she have gotten him off? Could that testimony have set him free again to do you know, more crimes and ruin more lives? So I wonder if she ever thought of that. And... However, she did say in one interview that she was not sorry for anything that she had done for her grandson. So I know she loved him. I know she definitely would not want him to spend the rest of his life in prison or be sentenced to death. But she said she was not sorry about anything that she had done to help him. 
Now, if she had been providing alibi testimony, whether it was from the written statement or the verbal statement given in court, then that means she had to have been lying because Cherix was committing the crime and he admitted it to her. So I'm really wondering why she wasn't charged with perjury because based on what she said in that interview that he told her after she testified that he was guilty, the only way for him to have been guilty is if she had lied about the alibi. So the last statement from Louise Cherix that I'm going to focus in on was she, and I'm paraphrasing, she said that she took some comfort in knowing that when she passed away, that Brian would not be left on this earth with no one to care for him. Now, if this was not in any other context, if someone were to just say a grandmother whose grandson was about to die made this statement that basically the grandson had no one left on earth to care for him, that nobody loved him, so the fact that he would be dying before her meant that when she actually died, he would not be left alone on this earth. That could seem heartbreaking. You might hear that and think, what a poor man to have no one else in his life, you know, to take care of him, to love him. But, you know, this was not just some minor crime. This was not, you know, being a kid and stealing candy from a dollar store. This was murder. And I'm not saying that stealing is right, but comparatively, she was not giving him an alibi for, you know, something minor like candy from a dollar store. She was giving him an alibi for one of the most horrific cases that can happen. So I think I'm just going to stop my rant there, but I can feel for her as a grandmother, but completely detest the things that she did. Tessa's mother, Ida Ward, said that the children, of course, had had a hard time coping. And this is completely expected, of course. Unfortunately, it is those that Tessa left behind who have to bear the burden and have to soldier on even after the crime is done and the trials are over and even after the sentence comes to fruition. Now, Tessa's son, who was known as Little Bink, Remember, the husband was Binky. Um, he was too young to remember what his mother looked like. He was only two. So, really, children at two can't remember things. And Cora looks a lot like her mother, so much so that Ward has said sometimes she calls Cora by Tessa's name. And here are just some final thoughts. When people speak about the death penalty, the phrase an eye for an eye comes up a lot. It indicates that what one person takes away from another or does to another will be done back to the perpetrator or the person who took something from someone. In this case, we're actually talking about a human life. For many, many murder cases, I don't think this saying comes anywhere near to the truth. The person who committed the crime knows what their days are going to bring them. They know that they're going to have three meals, shelter, someone to talk to, and visits from their family. Though the meals and the shelter and the conversation will not be as good as anything that they would have had outside of prison, they have what they need to survive 
while the person that they killed doesn't. And it's the visits from family that really gets to me. You know, it makes an attempt to compare the crime versus the punishment, but to me, there's no comparison. For one thing, no amount of punishment will ever bring back Tessa to her family and friends. Even though it's comparing them in death, he's the one who caused her death. And while he'll be dead also, he won't be dead like Tessa Van Hart. While he may still fear facing the execution, at least he's had the opportunity to reconcile himself to it and face it. He can say goodbye to his family, knowing that this will be the last time he sees them. He can make sure that he said all, all the I love yous and hugs were done, and both he and his family know what's coming next. He may still fear, but nowhere near as much as Tessa had feared the night that she was killed, I'm sure. She experienced a physical assault prior to her death, while Brian Cherix's last requests were honored. Tessa was thinking about her children being left to grow up without her. She was begging for her life, while Cherix was, for his punishment, living in a prison that was of his own actions. He's the one who caused that to happen. Whether or not you believe in the death penalty or not, we will all have to admit that Tessa Van Hart in no way deserved any of the things that were done to her. Brian Cherix made his choices, and it seems like he wasn't really ready to accept the responsibility of the life that he took. I do hope, though, that in his final moments, he realized how unjust it was that while he didn't listen to Tessa's request, he expected everybody to listen to his. Maybe that's too much to ask of him. I don't know. What I do know is Tessa did nothing wrong while Cherix made her last few moments terrifying. So it doesn't really seem like it's an eye for an eye to me. So this is the story of Tessa Van Hart's murder. It's, it's scary because many of us live in small towns we know the people around us and we feel safe, but then it just takes one person or evil to enter into that community and change the way its residents think and change the actions that they take every day. And I'm sure that it did affect Shinkatig in that way. I have visited Famous once recently. Um, it was a little while back um, before the pandemic and you know, I, my kids were with us and I had to go there. I told my husband, this is where we're going for dinner. And like I said, it kind of taints, you know, the good memories I have of the area. So, you know, I guess we'll just have to push out the negative, but not forget Tessa's story and that if not for the actions of Brian Cherix, she would have been around to see her children grow up, to be a grandmother grow old with Binky and be happy and a monster took that away from her and I do consider him that I'd like to thank everybody for listening today I hope that even for just a few moments Tessa can live on in our hearts and minds and that she's not forgotten I'm working on a few cases right now you know especially the one that I mentioned earlier if I'm not able to get that one out as my next episode, there are a couple shorter stories that 
um, I may make as the next episode. Um, I just really appreciate everybody tuning in. Um, that means a lot so that we can try to learn from other people's actions and in some cases not really be able to understand why someone did something but to at least make us aware of the things that go along or go on around us to better up to better prepare us and hopefully you know even if we can't learn or understand why someone did a specific action we may sometimes be able to notice some warning signs in this case you know if someone were to come in and spend the time like Cherix had inside of famous we might now recognize that he may have been a little infatuated with Tessa and that may make us feel a little more cautious when dealing with him but at that time that wasn't really something that everybody considered and finally though if you ever do get a chance to visit Shinkatig it's you know to me it's wonderful it's just inviting even though a murder like this occurred there it doesn't show what everybody who lives in that area is like it doesn't show the welcoming and warm smiles the hospitality and just the beautiful scenery so i hope to be getting down there sometime soon even though probably not this month because it's supposed to be really really hot there but i think you'll love it and if you like ponies you'll love it too at least i think you would but i hope everybody has a great rest of your week I will be talking to you, to you soon, and again, I appreciate everybody for listening. Have a great day. Bye.